Well, I'm so glad to be here with you all today. Study God's Word. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Open up to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Today's message is entitled, Lessons from the Persecuted Church. You know, Christians have been persecuted starting right back here in the book of Acts with the birth of the church, and we're going to look at that today. If you've been with us, you know that we're going verse by verse through the book of Acts, and we saw that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Afterwards, Peter preached to the crowd that had gathered there, and over 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ and became followers of Jesus. Then in Acts chapter 3, Peter healed a man who was crippled from birth. And as the crowds gathered around that, that miracle to see the man who they knew always laid outside the temple gate, now inside the temple, walking and leaping and praising the Lord, as the people gathered, Peter again preached the gospel and told the people who Jesus is and that he is risen. And another 2,000 people uh, put their faith in Christ so that the church is growing exponentially. And yet, at the same time, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they were upset. You see, they thought that their troubles with this Jesus would be done since they had Jesus crucified. They expected their troubles to decrease. And yet when they heard the miracle done in Jesus' name, and they heard the disciples were in the temple preaching about Jesus, telling the people that Jesus is not only alive, but that He is the Messiah, they were upset. And so they arrested Peter and John, who were there in the temple. And standing before these religious leaders, Peter proclaimed in Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, we covered this last week. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." So Peter boldly shared the facts with these religious leaders. These were the guys that were in power. He showed them it was all about Jesus, and he shared that only in Jesus can anyone be saved. And now we pick up in Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. We read how no good deed goes unpunished. Verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had spent their lives studying. To qualify to become a Pharisee, they had to memorize the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament. I mean, incredible amounts of studying and learning. Impressive. And yet, in their eyes, they look at Peter and John and they realize these guys aren't even educated. right? These are the high school dropouts. These guys didn't finish school. They don't have fancy degrees. And yet, we know that they were informally educated with three years of following Jesus. 
And that is what the religious leaders recognized, that although they were uneducated officially, they had been with Jesus. And if you like to take notes, the first note on your note sheet, the only prerequisite for witnessing is being with Jesus. You see, formal education can be a great thing. It can be so helpful. But if it's the only thing, then they still don't know Jesus, like the Pharisees and scribes. Whether you went to college or not, whether you've taken Bible classes or Bible college or not, it's not so important. What's important is, have you been with Jesus? Have you spent time in the Word? Have you spent time in prayer? Spending time with Jesus is what enables you to have something to share, to have something to tell others. And that's what we want as a church. We want people to see our actions and hear our words and recognize we have been with Jesus. Look at verse 14 with me. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. So they're looking at Peter and John and they say, these guys are uneducated, but they've been with Jesus. And with them is this man who was healed. So they couldn't say anything about the miracle, but that's amazing to me. You see, this man who was healed, he went into the temple after he was healed. And he stayed with Peter and John. He let all the people see that his body was restored and that there really was a miracle that had been done. But even then, when Peter and John were being arrested, this man stayed with them. Don't you love that? You see, we get the idea that this man, he wasn't just out to find the blessings of God, but he was out to find out, who are you, God? I want to know this Jesus that healed me. I don't want to just know his blessings, but I want to know him. And so here he is. He stuck with Peter and John. He stayed with them the night in jail, was arrested alongside them, and now he's there still. And because of it, the Pharisees can't deny that there was indeed a miracle that happened. Verse 15, it says, But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. It's interesting because they're talking about the facts here, right? The fact that this man was healed, they couldn't deny it. And so, do they humble themselves and become believers? Do they repent from their ways and confess, we crucified the Lord God? Sadly, no. Their hearts were hardened because of pride and fear. Look at verse 17 with me. They say, But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. You see, the religious leaders, they cared more about popularity than about truth. Notice their fear of man. They feared that this story would go out even beyond Jerusalem. They feared the story would continue to be told and more people would learn about Jesus that even though He was crucified, He's still doing miracles today through His church. And because of their fear, they said, alright, we can't deny the facts, but we're just going to ignore them and we're going to threaten these guys and tell them they can't tell anybody else about it. 
So they plan to severely threaten them. Verse 18. So they called them and commanded them, Peter and John, not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Remember, the Pharisees, the scribes, these guys were supposed to be the leaders. Not just the ones in charge, but they were supposed to be the most holy men of the Jews. Leading the people spiritually. They were so concerned with obeying God's law that they wrote hundreds of extra laws to help make sure that they followed God's law perfectly. And yet in the midst of it, they got lost. They got too focused on religion and they lost God in it. And so how ironic that it's Peter and John who are now graciously reminding the religious role models when you must choose between the two, obey God rather than man. When you must choose between the two, choose to obey God over man. And that's the place that they put Peter and John in. They gave them a command from their authority, but they confessed, we must obey God. He's called us to preach and tell others about Him. It's interesting to me that as they respond to the the mistreatment, to the arrest, and to the hypocrisy, they they don't mock the Pharisees. They don't call them names. They don't get angry or start throwing punches. We're reading Romans chapter 12, verse 17 in the New Living Translation. It says, Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. And that's what we see with Peter and John. Although they were rebelling against their earthly authority, these religious leaders, because they were choosing to obey God, they still did so as respectfully as they could. They wanted to represent Jesus well by living honorably, even when they had to disobey so that they could obey God. Look at verse 21. It says, So when they had further threatened them, now remember, they already severely threatened, now they're further threatening them, then they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. We get the idea that the religious leaders, they would have loved to deny the truth of the miracle altogether, but they couldn't. The facts were there. They had no choice. And so they let Peter and John go with severe threats and then further threats. And I want to pause here for a moment and kind of take a step back from this story because we've been in this story for three weeks already. And if we remember the beginning of this story, Peter and John were just on their way to the temple for prayer, right? They were going to pray, and as they went, they were stirred, led by the Holy Spirit to stop and talk with this crippled man who laid outside of the gate of the temple every single day. People would carry him there and he would beg for money. And yet this day, of all days, they felt led to stop 
and to talk. And not only that, Peter felt led to actually reach out to the man and command him healed in the name of Jesus and pull the man to his feet. And he was healed. That's what led to the crowd gathering. That's what led to Peter preaching. And that's what led to Peter and John being arrested, spending the night in jail, and being severely threatened by the Pharisees. You see, because Peter obeyed God, that led to this opposition. Your next point is that sometimes obeying God brings opposition. Sometimes obeying God brings opposition. And I think that can sometimes be a stumbling block for us. I know it can for me. You see, we naturally think that if we obey God, especially if we go out of our way, to serve God or serve others in His name, we expect He's going to bless us. We expect our life will get easier. And yet Jesus doesn't promise us a blessed life. He promises us eternal life. God promises to reward us, but in heaven, not on earth. You might remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Elijah was a prophet in Israel. And at this time, Israel... They had turned away from God and they were all worshipping the false god Baal. They had a wicked king, Ahab, and his wife was even worse, wicked queen Jezebel. And she led the nation in this worship of Baal. Well, Elijah was led by God to set up an experiment. He said, guys, we're all going to meet on Mount Carmel. You prophets of Baal, you're going to build an altar to your God. I'm going to build an altar to my God. And then we're going to pray. And the God that sends down fire upon the altar, we're not going to light it. We're going to pray and see which God strikes it with lightning or sends down fire upon the altar. And then we'll know which God is the one true God. You guys all know the story. The prophets of Baal spent all day begging and pleading for their God to send down fire. Elijah says, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he took a day off. Sorry, guys. Well, at the evening sacrifice, Elijah stands up. And before he prays, he commands the people to pour water over his altar. And they do that three times so that everything is just soaked and there's water all around it. And then he prays and he says, Lord, send down the fire. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 38, It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. That's amazing. I mean, there's not even stones or dust left because of the fire that consumed it all. God showed up and proved Himself to be the one true God. The people of Israel who were gathered there, they confessed and said, Okay, Elijah, you were right. The God of Israel is the one true God. And then Elijah says, get rid of those prophets of Baal. And they gathered them up and they put them all to death. The 400 false prophets of Baal. And you think, man, what a victory for the Lord, right? Finally, Elijah the prophet might get to be a prophet in a nation that actually believes in his God and worships it. And yet... The next day, wicked Queen Jezebel, she sends out word across the nation, says, I've got a death warrant for the prophet Elijah. 
Not only that, but we just anointed 400 new prophets of Baal. And so it's overnight. Elijah goes from the mountaintop to the valley low. Overnight, it seems like it wasn't even worth it. Nothing really came from it. The nation of Israel is still rebelling against the God of Israel and worshiping Baal. And now, simply because Elijah obeyed God, he's running for his life, fleeing from his own nation. He obeyed God and now the opposition got worse. What about David? David killed Goliath by faith, trusting in the Lord. And because of that, that led to King Saul's jealousy towards him, right? And so then David had to flee for about 20 years, running for his life from his own king, all because he obeyed God. What about Daniel or Jeremiah or Joseph or others? We could go on. But you get the point. It's not uncommon for somebody to step out in faith, to obey the Lord, and then for opposition to get worse afterwards. You see, we need to ask ourselves, do I seek to live a good life or a godly life? Do I seek to live a good life or a godly life? If we seek after a good life, then we're often going to be disappointed. Because although life can be good at times, it's not something that we're promised as believers. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus said in John 16:33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Elsewhere in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I've yet to see somebody get that one tattooed on their arm. And yet it's the Bible. It's true. Are we seeking to live after a good life or a godly life? Because if we live a godly life seeking to please God, then we remember that we're servants of God. And we serve the God who came down to serve. We serve the God who came down and suffered and was opposed. You see, we're not entitled to any blessing in this earthly life, but we are entitled to every blessing in heaven. And those heavenly blessings are not because we deserve them, but it's because God is good, He is gracious, and He is loving. When we choose to obey God, He doesn't owe us as a result. And I confess, I've struggled with this over the years. I just naturally think, Lord, wasn't that amazing how I serve you? All right, now, Lord, I get like ready. I'm like, what's my wish, right? What is the thing that I really want to ask for? We get this idea that He owes us one. And yet, no matter how many years we serve and love and obey the Lord, we're always going to be in His debt because of all that He's given us and all that He's promised us. And so, when Peter and John were arrested and threatened for serving Jesus, they weren't shocked. Jesus warned there would be tribulation and persecution. And as we'll see in the book of Acts, this is just the beginning. As we hear about a little bit of North Korea and what it's like for Christians there, we're reminded, man, we live in a pretty unique place in the world. And it's easy for me, living in such a blessed place, 
to forget that I'm not actually entitled to those blessings. I enjoy them while they're here. But they're not promised to me by God. They might be promised by man, but we know how that goes, right? All right, I'm going to move on before I get in trouble. Verses 23 through 31. The disciples seek the Lord. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. Now, stop there. Pause right there. I love that after Peter and John shared their burdens, shared their problems with the other disciples, they raised their voice to God as one in prayer. I love that. You see, we're usually pretty good about sharing our problems with other people, but sometimes we neglect that next step of seeking the Lord together. Your next fill in the blank, sharing our burdens without prayer can only bring earthly comfort. It's limited. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, it says, And if one member of the body of Christ, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member of the body of Christ is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You see, God has not only called us to be one body, but He's made us one body. He's declared we are one body in Him. And so let's be that body. Maybe you need to let others be that body for you. You need to share your burdens with a godly friend so that they can then listen and empathize and then pray for you and lead you closer to Christ. Maybe you need to be that body for others and find those who are suffering in your life and come alongside them and listen and then pray and point them to Christ. Point them in His Word to where our hope lies. You see, in sorrow or in joy, God wants us to be united as one. And that's one of the reasons why we're praying for the persecuted church. Once a month, we're going to pick a different nation and learn about what life is like for Christians in that nation and then pray for them because we are one with them. We are all one body. So the disciples, they all prayed to God as one. And again in verse 24, it says, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, You are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of Your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I like that prayer. And I wanted to read it in its entirety and now we're going to go back and kind of break it up into chunks and look at it. 
And so their prayer began with, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see, their prayer began with worship. Your next fill in the blank. Their prayer began with worship. They reminded themselves as they prayed who they were praying to. They're praying to God, the creator of all things. The starting point of their prayer was not their fears, it was not their enemies, but it was their God. Praying about who their God is and what their God has done. The prophet Jeremiah prayed something similar in Jeremiah 32 verse 17. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. You see, the prophet Jeremiah and the disciples here in Acts, they both recognized the same thing. That as they worshipped God and praised Him for who He is and the fact that He created everything, that alone shows that He has all power. The fact that He created everything means that no matter what kind of problems or burdens or issues or circumstances they bring to God, nothing is too hard for Him. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He knows the stars by name. And so they began their prayer with that worship. And now they continue in verse 25. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. So in their prayer, they're remembering Scripture because these two verses here are directly quoted from Psalm 2. They're quoting a prophecy here. This prophecy that foretold how the rulers and authorities, the kings and those in charge, would reject and rebel against God and His servant, the Messiah, Jesus. And it came to pass just as Psalm 2 foretold in their prayer in verse 27. They say, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So in their prayer, they're remembering, even though Pilate, the religious leaders, they all thought they were in charge. They all thought they had the authority Really, God, you were the one in charge. You were pulling the strings the whole time. You foretold it would happen. And their choices of crucifying Jesus only happened because you allowed it to happen according to your plan. You see, God was using their wicked choices to provide salvation to the ends of the earth. And the disciples recognized that in their prayer. Because in their prayer, they focused on God's sovereignty. Your next fill in the blank. They focused on God's sovereignty. The sovereignty of God means that God is in control over all things. And that ultimately, He will accomplish His will. It means that God sees the larger picture and is faithfully working everything for His glory. That's what the disciples recognized about Jesus' arrest and trials and crucifixion. The religious leaders, they weren't really in control. God was allowing them to do what they did so that He could accomplish His will for His plan, for His glory, for His name, for His kingdom. 
Therefore, as they prayed, they recognized that God can use their current suffering, the threats of the Pharisees, for God's purpose and for God's good. In other words, they were trusting in the promise of Romans 8.28, even before Romans 8.28 was written by the Apostle Paul. They were trusting in it because they knew it. And it says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And this is good in, in God's eyes, good in God's perspective. Because God is sovereign, the disciples were confident that He would work in their situation and accomplish His will for good in His eyes. You see, when we focus our prayers on God's sovereignty, it kills fear. Because we're confident that God will ultimately bring all things back for His glory, for His kingdom, for His purpose. In your life right now, whatever you're going through, God wants to use it for good. It doesn't mean it's always fun. It doesn't mean there's no tears. But it does mean that we will be able to look back and say, Lord, thank you for how you used that time in my life. Lord, thank you for coming alongside me when only you knew what I was going through. God wants to be that for you. And when we pray, trusting in God's sovereignty, it sets the fear free and it goes away. Because we know that God's in control and that He has a plan. I'm wearing this shirt today. God has a plan. My friend Harold from Pennsylvania always said it. God has a plan. Always said it. And when he got COVID, he said, God's got a plan. When it turned into double pneumonia, he said, God's got a plan. When he was rushed to the hospital, he told his family, God's got a plan. When he needed to be life-flighted to Pittsburgh to a new hospital and there was too much snow and ice in the air, they couldn't life-flight him, they had to drive him. He said, God's got a plan. And for the next several weeks, he was in a, a coma and he eventually went to be with Jesus. And the legacy that he left behind is that God's got a plan. He trusted in the sovereignty of God. He believed in it with all of his heart. And because of that, he's still encouraging people today because of the life that he lived and because of the glory that God is using in his life to bring that glory back to God. Now, look at how the disciples finish their prayer. In verse 29, they pray, Now, Lord, look on their threats, the threats of the Pharisees and scribes. Look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hands to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Your next fill in the blank, they prayed for power to obey. Power to obey. I love this example. You see, first of all, the disciples knew what God had called them to do. 
They knew that God told them, preach, tell people about me, tell them I'm risen, tell them I'm alive, and tell them that I am the only way of salvation. They knew that was their calling. That was their job. But secondly, they also knew that they had no power to fulfill that calling in their own strength. They knew that in their own strength, they couldn't stand up to the Pharisees and all their authority and their power, let alone fulfill the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. How could they do that in their own strength? And so, they pray. They say, Lord, I know what you've called me to do, but I need you to help me to do it. I need you to fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit and empower me to do what you're calling me to do. And so they prayed for boldness to keep sharing. They prayed for miracles to be done in the name of Jesus, to testify of Jesus. It's interesting to me that they neglected to pray for their own safety and health. Did you catch that? They didn't pray, and Lord, we pray that those Pharisees would lose their places of authority. Lord, we pray that their threats would be empty. Lord, we pray that when they punch us in the face, that it wouldn't hurt. And that when they put us in jail, we get a soft pillow. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for safety or health. I just find it interesting that in this prayer, it's not mentioned. I want to be like that. The disciples omitted those prayers because they were less concerned with personal comforts and more concerned with obeying Christ. You see, we should, we should pray more for our ministry than to remove our suffering. That's your next fill in the blank. We should pray more for our ministry than to remove our suffering. Again, don't get me wrong. If you can relieve suffering without sinning, by all means, do that, right? You all remember that the Apostle Paul was lowered in a basket out of the window so that he didn't get murdered yet, right? So it's okay to relieve suffering when you can as long as it's not a sin to do so. But I want to be more concerned with obedience to Jesus than my personal comfort. And to be open with you as I judged my own heart, as I looked at my own prayers, I realized that most of my prayers had to do with personal issues than eternal issues. And I was convicted this week. Because looking at the example of the apostles, I realized my prayer life shows where my heart is. It shows that I really like a good life. And I want to be more like the disciples. The disciples were willing to suffer because Jesus had suffered. They wanted to fulfill God's command to preach the gospel, and they recognized they needed God's power to be filled with the Spirit to do that. And so what happened after they prayed? Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. You say, wait a second, didn't this happen in Acts chapter 2? Yes. It's happening again. Why? Because we're filled with the Spirit, but we leak. Right? We need to be refilled. We need to be refilled again 
and again. And every time the disciples came to a place where they knew this is opposition, I know what I'm called to do, but I don't have the strength in my own flesh to do it. Lord, I need you to fill me afresh with your spirit and empower me to be the church you've called me to be. That's what we need, church. We need to confess what God has called us to do and recognize we need God's spirit to do it. And so we go to him, we seek him, and we say, Lord, fill us afresh. Empower us to do the things that you've called us to do. That way God gets all the glory. Remember, trying to serve God in your own strength, it's only going to produce frustration and burnout. I've been there. Frustrated and burnt out. Because I was going on my own strength, not on the Lord's. One final thought before we close. When the disciples were commanded to stop telling others about Jesus, they responded in verse 20 today. In Acts chapter 4, they said, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And my challenge for us today is this. After all God has done for us, how can we stay silent? After all God has done for us, how can we stay silent? You might say, but I'm not qualified. The only qualification is to be with Jesus. You might say, but I'm not capable. You're right. Neither am I. And so we wait on the Lord and we pray for His strength, for His filling, so that we may speak in His power rather than our own. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. And God, I thank You for the godly example of Peter and John as they boldly confess their need to honor and obey You in the face of authorities that commands them otherwise. Lord, I thank You for the example of them choosing to live a godly life instead of pursuing a good life. And Lord, when we look to You and our hearts are changed by You, then that definition of good changes with it. And we realize, in Your eyes, a good life is a life that brings glory to Your name. In the times of joy, we glorify You. In the times of suffering, we glorify You. And in all things, we remember all that You have done for us, both personally and as Your body, Your church. We remember what You have done. And we confess, Lord, how can we stay silent about who You are and the salvation You've given us and the salvation You've promised to others? So God, we ask right now, would You fill us afresh with Your Holy Spirit? God, would You anoint us with Your power? Would You give us boldness to share You with others? God, would You give us the power we need to obey You and turn away from the desires of our flesh? God, we cannot do these things in our own strength. And so we look to You. Lord, would You use us as Your church, as Your hands and Your feet 
And God, would you bring much glory to your name through us, through our lives. Lord, give us the faith that we need to keep our eyes fixed on you even when that opposition arises. God, may we be bearing each other's burdens, pointing each other to you. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for what you've already done. And God, we thank you for the promise of eternal life. We thank you that you win in the end. You've already won on the cross and with the empty grave. So we praise you, Lord. We say hallelujah to Jesus, the only name given among men by which we must be saved. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me and worship the Lord? As you go, if you have something that we can pray for you about, we've got some guys up front, a lady in the bookstore or the library who will pray for you. Otherwise, you can fill out that response card and drop it in the offering box and we'll pray for you that way. As you go, say hi to somebody else who's part of the body of Christ. Have a great rest of the day. Know the Lord loves you and He is with you. God bless.